It's Baxi's musical podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Bax, and welcome back to Baxi's musical podcast. It's great to have you back with me. For another episode, if this is your first time here, welcome. You're in for a real good one with my guest, Craig Bell, from Rocket from the Tombs and the Saucers and a bunch of other great stuff from as far back as the early 1970s. So let me explain to you what you're going to hear today. Over the course of rock history, there are countless examples of bands that have achieved this legendary status, not because of what they recorded, but because of what the people in those bands would eventually become. Now, many of these bands have recorded nothing at all. But that's not what's important here. In the UK, for example, there have been stories of a band called the London SS. They not only didn't record anything, they barely got past the auditioning stage of trying to pick out members for the band that would hardly ever wind up playing. And yet the band, or lack thereof, would go on to spawn The Clash, The Damned, Billy Idol and Generation X, and several others. But then you also had a band called Rocket from the Tombs out of Cleveland, Ohio. This was a proto-punk band that came very close to making it big, despite never releasing any of their own music until they reformed temporarily in the 1990s. But the legacy of this band is significant for not only what it fractured into, but because of the incredible punk and art rock anthems that were divided between them as they split. On one hand, you had guitarists Cheetah Chrome and Johnny Blitz leave to form the legendary Dead Boys with Stiv Baders. And then you also had David Thomas and Peter Loeffner leave to form the legendary Pierre Ubu. And Craig Bell, the bass player, would move to Connecticut where he would establish his own very long musical career as well. This is a story of a band that could have and should have been huge and by all reports may have been one of the great long-lost American rock bands of all time. A band responsible for songs like Sonic Reducer, Final Solution, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Muckraker, Ain't It Fun, Down in Flames, and more. And since then, Rocket from the Tombs has only grown in stature, especially after reforming in 1993 with Richard Lloyd from television filling in for the late Peter Loeffner. This was a band that would spawn some of the most timeless songs ever, covered by everybody from Guns N' Roses to Living Color to Peter Murphy from Bauhaus and many, many more. This is my conversation with Craig Bell from the legendary Rocket from the Tombs on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Mike. Good to see you. <laughs> Good to see you. Nice to meet you. Absolutely. I'm glad that uh, our friend Chuck put us together. Yeah, unfortunately, under the circumstances that we were talking, I'm I'm glad something good came out of it. Well, I am I am happy that you're you're joining me today because you know I, I've been I've been listening to a bunch of the stuff that you posted on on Bandcamp, the Room in My Head album, which I th- I thought was really very cool. I really really liked it. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Tell tell me a little bit about that about that record. Now you're, you're living in Indiana now, right? I've lived out here in Indianapolis. I moved here uh, in 1989 from New Haven. I've been up. Um, Claudia and I were out here ever since. Wow. And uh, uh, the room in my head started out. It started out. I was working with band Craig after uh, I had a band out here for about ten years called the Down Five. And after that band broke up, I sort of just started doing shows under my own name, Craig Bell and Band, you know, nice and simple, you know. <laughs> so I was working with a few guys, and we uh, worked up a bunch of songs and went into the studio to record them. We did the basic tracks, and then there was like a hiatus of a month. 
And in the time of that month, those guys, they were doing other things, so they had to go. I've got like three basic songs down. The first three songs, I got the basic tracks down, and the rest of it is just a pile of paper. <laughs> so with the help of the of the guys there at the studio, uh, Tyler Watkins, this guy I've been working with for about 20 years, uh, his him and Alex Kirchville own Postal Recording in Indianapolis. We uh, put together that album, wrote a lot of those songs in the studio, took some uh, pieces that I had recorded on synthesizer in my rehearsal space here at my home and uh, pieced together with the lyrics that I've been collecting over the years and pieced together things like um, careful with that axe body spray, for instance. <laughs> that's uh, that's my sister playing flute who flew in from, from New Hampshire for one day to do her flute parts on the album. <laughs> I told her, you can do them from the studio in New Hampshire. She goes, oh, no, no, no. I want to come in and be with you. I said, oh, well, great. Well, come on, you know, but the lyrics uh, to that particular song years ago, I was doing a crossword puzzle one day, New York Times, Will, Will Sorts, Shorts. And uh, when I got done, I'm looking at it and I thought, man, these are some really neat words. So I wrote down every word that was in a cross answer. And then I wrote down every word that was a down answer. And those are the lyrics to careful with that X body spray. Very, very cool. Bill, Bill or whoever wrote that crossword puzzle, if they can figure out which one. Well, I'm sure they know which one it is because the words are in the exact order as yeah. they were. I, I don't think they tag you on copyright problems from a, from a, from a crossword <laughs> puzzle. I think you're good. I think you're good. <laughs> I certainly hope so. As I was looking through uh, through Bandcamp, I also saw the album, uh, a.k.a. Darwin Lane, which I thought was really interesting to, to go back and to listen to those songs and how it kind of you know it tracks your your whole career. And and really looked at what you've you've done. So then I immediately went to your website and looked at yeah. You know, I mean, there's just dozens of things that that you've done over the course of the last you know fifty some odd years, and it really is just a remarkably fascinating career. Well, thank you very much. It really has been uh, quite a journey, and uh, sometimes wondering when it was going to end <laughs> or if it had already ended, and. Uh, but yeah, I've uh, been I've been very lucky to work with amazing amount of really talented people. Starting out back in Cleveland with the first band I was in with Jamie Klimek and Jim Crook, the guys who really taught me basically how to play. Right. And they're joining up with David and Peter and Rocket from the Tombs and Cheetah and Johnny and all them. And we had a short period of time right in there. But I mean, it was it was a, a it was a magical time. It was. Really, if you felt like when, the, when they talk about how you feel like you're on a rocket ship, that's how it felt for those brief eight months that we went up and then went that. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, I, a few weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Cheetah Chrome and uh, and asked, yes. asked him, you know, a bunch of I mean, the guy can tell a story like uh, like nobody's business. But, you know, yeah, and, he really is. The dude is a real piece of work. And it was a real pleasure to talk to him. And and, and thankfully, I have a, another friend in common that got me in touch with him, but one of those things that that is has always fascinated me, like it's fascinated a lot of people. Rocket from the Tombs is one of these bands where, when you think about what they were and what they would, unfortunately, not quite become, and the and the impact they had for the next dozen years, it's one of those great lost rock bands of all time. Tell me a, a little bit about how you got involved with them. In, in the first place, because you were not an original member of, of Rocket from the Tombs. 
No, technically the only two, only original member, if you want to go back to the genesis, the beginning of that band is David. David was a writer for the scene and uh, he put together with some local musicians a uh, band, I think it was called Rockets from the Tombs Dua Death Band. And they would do, got some opening spots with like some national acts that would come through town. Those guys were going along and then I think one of the guys left and Peter joined. Yeah. And when Walkner joined, he and David started talking about taking the band in a more serious uh, direction. So I had known Peter for a number of years. He had been, you know, a, a fixture on the music scene for many years, going back to my high school days. Uh, he was in a band called Mr. Charlie uh, in a, a town, a couple towns over from where I grew up. And uh, Peter was a fan of Mirrors, the band that I was in at the time. Uh, he and his wife, Charlotte, would come to a lot of our shows. Charlotte came to all our shows, if I remember correctly. And uh, But uh, he was a big fan. So Mirrors was kind of on a hiatus. This is after I'd come back from the Army. I'd been gone for nearly two years. Uh, so I was out of the band, then back in. Mm -hmm. And it was about almost a year after that. I had been back in the band and we were kind of on a low period. We weren't doing any shows. We were, weren't really doing anything. And Peter approached me and said, Hey, you know, this guy, David, I knew who David was says, David and I are, are, are putting this band rock from the tombs together. And I got these two really hot, this hot guitarist and this, this drummer, they're two young kids, you know, and we're going to, we're going to do this thing. I want you to come down and, and see if you want to join. So I come down and, uh, hook up with the guys we we play some songs play a little bit of kiss a little velvet underground you know stuff then then they throw uh so cold at me and uh we start playing that we work on that a little bit and everything's going along really good so off we go uh have a cup of coffee which i guess to me at that point was sort of like nobody ever really said you're in the band but i guess if i'm going <laughs> out with them i'm in the band so all this time during the audition i'm thinking to myself looking at this this kid guitarist they got long red hair uh, <laughs> and just phenomenal loud and crazy and wild you know and i'm thinking to myself i know this guy where do i know this guy from <laughs> and so we go we're having coffee we're talking you know this that all of a sudden it hits me maybe a year earlier i was driving a taxi in cleveland Got a call to go down by the lakefront. There were some. There was some uh, housing down in that area. Housing uh, apartment blocks. Call down there to go pick somebody up. Pull up front. Out walks this dude, solid silver suit, man. I mean, top <laughs> to bottom, silver boots, aviator glasses, long red hair. Hops in the back of the cab and goes, "Hey, uh, you know where Twiggy's is? <laughs> yeah, I'll take you there. All right." Off we go, driving along. Get over there. Uh, he's digging through his pockets, looking through for money and everything. Gives me the fare. He's like a, a 10 cents short. So I'm like, all right, man. Well, don't worry about it. You know, off he goes. I'm figuring that's the end of that. Off I go. Here we are now sitting at this table. I'm looking. I'm saying, I know you. You owe me 10 cents. <laughs> Did he ever pay it back? Well, yes, he did in Chicago some years later because he got sick of hearing me tell that story. 
So he, he gave me the 10 cents and told me to shut up. And now I haven't <laughs> shut up. So now I'm probably in trouble, but that's okay too. That's okay. I'd, li- I'd like to see the two of you, you know, roll around the ground for 10 cents. That'd be pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> in my younger days, maybe, but I don't know now I, I could get down there. I don't know if I can get back up. <laughs> But, you know, everything I, you read about the band, you know, I mean, you guys had these incredibly, you know, iconic anthems that you were, you know, performing all the time. You know, songs that would later become, you know, whether it was Pirubu or, or the Dead Boys or, you know, even the, the songs that, that, that you wind up taking along with you. When you put that into perspective and you say, and, and people look at that and they're like, well, you know, why was this not the, the biggest band in America with, with these great songs? And, and, and you wonder what did happen? To rockets from a tomb. Well, what happened was is we were we had made this uh, tape. Uh, the whole the whole reason for the coming together of that version of the band was that Peter had convinced the local radio station that they should play local bands. Well, they told him, "All right, sure, bring a tape in and we'll play it." Thinking, well, they don't have you know, what are they going to get a tape? Peter goes out, says, "All right, guys, we're going to do it." We go and we make this tape which does get played on the radio, which is what really sets things off, gets uh, some opening acts. I think we opened for Iron Butterfly. We opened for Left End. Uh, <laughs> great stuff. I mean, really, it's got really a lot of good gigs. Things. Uh, uh, Peter brought television to town. We did two nights with television. Mm. Piccadilly. I mean, really, really good shows. Um, really stuff going along. Peter was friends with Lester Banks. Uh, and we took a drive up to Birmingham, Michigan one weekend to play the tape for Lester. And Lester loved it. Lester passed it on to, uh, I believe, uh, the producers of Blue Oyster Cult. Mm. They didn't love it so much. They kind of said, they came back, kind of said, I guess the word, the word that really everybody stuck on was derivative. <laughs> and, uh, and that really, you know, because this trajectory is going this way, you know, things are going great and you're 22, 21, even 19 years old and get here and boom, you know, the balloon bursts and there's no there to keep you calm and, and, you know, let tell everybody it's going to be all right. We're going to take another shot at this. Instead, it's like, oh, well, it's because you can't sing. No, you can't play. No, you yeah. can't do this. You can't do that, you know? self-doubt falls in and we just we blew it we didn't have that guiding hand that you need that you know looking back on it it's so easy to say oh yeah that's all we needed but you know a lot of luck comes into it too but you're right about the songs the songs have lived on uh sonic reducer 30 seconds over tokyo ain't it fun amphetamine um so cold muckraker Oh, and then many more. They they have lived on, and they're just as as fresh and strong today as they were when we recorded them what forty some years ago. I read Cheetah's book, and and there's a whole big, obviously, there's a whole big section about about this, and 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 very much like what you talk about that you know there wasn't that you guys had confidence, but you know as soon as someone said no, then that kind of rattled you. And one of the things that he talked about in the book, which I think is really interesting is there was a lot of criticism about David's voice, David Thomas's voice, which yes. I think is interesting because if you, if you, if you let like Pierre Ubu, you know, sink in, his voice is perfect for, you know, I yes. mean, it's very, very different. It might be an acquired taste, but when it comes to those songs and, and even on their first album, you listen to it and like, no, no, that's, the, that's the way it, it should be. And, 
I guess you know Neil Young can't can't sing, but yet he's had a tremendous career. Bob Dylan can't sing, but yet you know who's gonna who's gonna deny Bob Dylan? David Thomas, I think, is kind of like you know that kind of singer. You may not have an immediate appreciation, but damn it, those songs sound great with his voice. I think he's uh, proven that point over the years. Absolutely, quite well, quite well. Absolutely. And you know, I, I, I'm not going to speak for Cheetah or how, what he's saying, but I think that what, in my mind, what he meant and kind of where my head was at the time too was that the criticism was that he can't sing. We're looking for an excuse as why we failed, yeah. and of course, we're going to do our best not to blame ourselves. You know, so, well, yeah, I guess, you know, guess maybe, maybe his voice isn't quite for anybody. I forget the fact that, you know, sometimes I forgot how to tune my bass. Let's forget about that. Or let's forget about halfway through, halfway through a song. I forget what the, where the riff goes, you know, let's forget about that. But yeah, no, you know, people are put off by his voice. We were young, young. And I, like I said, I think if we had a, a hand, someone we we trusted and believed in i think that that would just have been a blip on the road and who knows what the next uh situation would be yeah but but it happened the way it happened and i find it so amazing that uh years later in the 1990s early 2000s all of a sudden this wave of interest in the band is revived um we put out we put out the recordings that have been bootlegged for so long uh, as the day the earth met rocket from the tombs adding the live stuff uh from the piccadilly which i didn't even know up until about 10 years no about five years before that i didn't even know that stuff existed really yeah i i left cleveland about a year after rocket broke up and uh that stuff had been recorded at the piccadilly but either i wasn't paying attention or i just forgot but i i had no idea and then in in the 90s i'm visiting jim jones and David's over at his house and they're playing these tapes and David's turning to me and point and doing, uh, we're doing, they're doing a song, read it and weep that I had. And, uh, he goes, what's the name of this song? And I, and I couldn't remember. So, so I had to go back and look at some old tapes that I had from saucers days. And I found it. And I, I sent him back a message. I said, Oh, that's read it and weep. You know, because I had, even though I had, I brought it to Connecticut with me and he, and we played it early in the early days of Saucers, I had just totally forgotten about that song also. We'd mentioned the uh, the, the songs and, and then to hear, you know, the band record again and then to play, you know, a, a, again, to have gotten back together many, many years later, was it 18 years later, that had to be a lot of fun. I mean, I, initially, I don't know how it, how it ended up, but I would imagine to, to, to get back together with those guys to do those songs again, to bring Richard Lloyd in, you know, you're talking about television, that kind of had to be a nice addition. Tell me about what got you guys back on a stage together. What did it take to make that happen? Well, like I said, I think the process started when David was playing me those, those tapes in, in 1996. And he was talking about, well, I'm thinking of, you know, of putting out an official release and, uh, and which he did, the Day of the Earth Met Rocket from the Tombs, and that came out in 2002. About six months after its release, David starts sending messages around saying, what do you think of us getting together for a one-time only show in Los Angeles at, he was putting on his disaster drone that year, in 2003 in Los Angeles. Right. And uh, Cheetah and I and uh, 
definitely, but we're immediately on board. You know, he brought in Steve Melman from Perubu on drums. And uh, we got together in Cleveland and started talking about who would who would be a good person to fill the role that Peter left because, you know, certainly not going to have him, unfortunately. Right. And uh, the talk quickly turned to Richard and uh, Cheetah and Richard were friends, contacted him. Richard immediately accepted and you have heard that he said, you know, that he want at long time wanted to be in that band. And we set off, did the LA show, did got together down in Nashville one time, and I think up in maybe Nashville a couple of times down where Cheetah was living. I think Richard, I, and uh, Cheetah got together one time with Steve too, I believe, and we worked on some stuff. And uh, then we got together for some rehearsals in Cleveland. And then, you know, one time, one shot deal, go out to LA and do this show. And it was just fantastic. I mean, the ovation was incre incredible. Mm. There were people that flew in from New Zealand to, I remember sitting in the courtyard, we we're about ready to go on. These two guys run up and they're breathless and they're going, they're going ah, 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 <laughs> have you guys gone on yet? Have you gone on yet? No, we're just getting like gone. Oh, thank God, we just got here from the airport. We just flew into <laughs> New Zealand, and I'm like, "Well, you win the distance award." Wow. <laughs> but you know, so, but I can, but I can, I can see that because you know, if you're if you're a fan of any of the any of the project that 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 spawned out of that band, uh, yes. I mean, this is this be like one of those essential shows, kind of like when you know when a band gets you know back together after many years with unresolved situation. You know, difficulties or questions out there you guys fit into that exact same place so i would imagine yes. any any fan of the dead boys or pure ubu or or the or the the saucers or whatever would be you would have to be at that show it was it was like that definitely through the first couple of years of places we would play again saying that was a one-shot deal well a one-shot deal turned into like a half a dozen shows that that spring and that turned into a national tour that fall. Uh, since then, we, you know, in the interim, we recorded um, Redux. Then a couple of years later, we went in and did Barfly. It just, it, it was always like, don't expect this to last. Uh, right now, this is what we're doing. But, you know, find something, make sure you find something else to do. It's sort of like, you know, never quit your day job, even though things are, are looking good kind of thing. <laughs> And uh, it, 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 well, to this day, it has continued on. Obviously, we haven't done anything in a while, but I mean, we haven't officially broken up. So who knows? After after going through that and some of the other uh, situations that I've found myself in over the last uh, 20, 30 years, I've just learned that, okay, I'm I'm going to see where this goes. <laughs> oh. Well, I, I, I will say this. Uh, you are responsible for one of my, my all-time favorite songs. I mean, uh, you know, Final Solution, I just think is one of the great rock songs you know, of all time. And I, I I wish I could have heard that in its in its infancy, what you guys really, you know, made it, wanted it to sound. I mean, no, eventually got it got recorded, but to have heard it, you know, the way you guys had intended it would have been really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, the live version that's on the day the earth met rocket from the tunes is probably as close to what the original version was because mm. it's slightly different from the Perubu version yeah. yeah i personally think the Perubu version is is the definitive version 
because it's the one most people know. And also it solved what I thought was the one little problem in that song, which was the um, dissension on the verse part instead of staying on the E. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and it, and it, and it wasn't, I didn't realize it as a problem until I heard the Perubu version. And I just said, Oh, that's perfect. That's exactly listen to how that just flows into the, into the bottom of the chorus, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So to this day, I still play that in my set. And, great, great uh, song. It's, it's a wonderful song. It was, it was a true collaboration, uh, David and I had arrived to practice early and come in, sit down and, you know, tune up and just talking, whatever. And David goes, well, I've got this song um, here. Let's let's try. Let's work on it a little bit before everybody gets here. So he starts. He's got excuse me. Say he's got like a small table next to him. So he just starts. The girls won't touch me till I got a misdirection. And then he kind of looked at me and says, now you do something here. <laughs> and so we're, you know, playing along with that and you get to that and I'm making some noise or something. And Peter arrives, he joins in. Cheetah arrives, he joins in. Blitz gets there. We, we work out this song. And right there, right in there, Peter comes up with that ending piece, throws that B-E at the ending, and yep. it just came together in the day, in the moment. Wow. And we started playing that out immediately, uh, and then it turned into what, what has become today. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, Peter Loeffner, because, I mean, you know, he died so young, and I know he certainly had you know, his issues along the way, but... You know, obviously, this is a guy that, that didn't get a chance to really show the world what he was capable of. Tell me a little bit about him. Well, I, I got to know Peter very well, you know, in, in the years after I uh, I knew him. I knew him a little bit before um, I joined Mirrors and joined Rockets, but I, I really got to know him. I even lived with him in Charlotte and at their apartment at the Plaza for a couple of years. And Peter was Peter was a terrible, incredibly, incredibly talented person. He was a writer, he was a thinker, he was a, a really, really excellent musician. And he was also a person who could bring all sorts of different people together. The, the, only, the only problem with the whole mix is that things, things that come together often just come apart. And it seemed mm. like anything that would come together with him would go to a certain level and then come apart. Yeah. And unfortunately, he never, stuck around long enough to see that cycle broken because his talent and his songs, his songwriting was just, it was on a level above a lot of people around here. Yeah. And I was, I was always in awe of him as a person, as a friend. I loved the guy. He taught me so much in terms, I mean, him and I are basically the same age, but he just seemed to have a more worldly uh, view of things he taught me a lot of things about you know looking at things and how to think about things he taught me a lot about uh, you know finding that within myself to get out on stage and to you know do what I do by watching him by by seeing his fearlessness because that guy was fearless that guy would go into any room and he would he would just go and and connect with people hmm. and and sometimes People found it off-putting. Sometimes people thought he was a bit too pushy, but he was only trying to just get in on the action. He was there for the action. Yeah. 
So when the band finally breaks up and you splinter off into different, you know, different avenues, you mean, you know, Blitz and, and Cheetah go with the Dead Boys with uh, Stiv Baders and and uh, and then this Pierre Ubu too with Lofner and uh, and uh, and David, but then you decide of all places to go, New Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So outside force. Outside forces had a little bit to do with it, but right. yes. No, I, I've I've been to New Haven. I've you know I've had the pizza. I've been on the train station. I've done I've done my share in New Haven. What was it about New Haven that said I got to go there? <laughs> <laughs> I come I come from a railroad family. Okay. I'm I went out to New Haven, Connecticut. I had been working on the railroad when I got out of high school, but I was laid off before I got drafted. And when I came home, uh, the Eastern railroads were in a mess and they, they weren't hiring in Cleveland. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, through family connections, I found out that Amtrak out on the East Coast was hiring. So I applied for a job and they told me you could pick one of four places. And the one place that they sh- said was the only one place that I had never been to. And that was New Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> and I thought, well, New Haven, it's halfway to between Boston and New York. Why not? <laughs> so I, I went out there, interviewed for the job, got the job and, and moved out there in September, 1976. So how? I had no idea what I was getting. I mean, the lay of the land or anything i just go out cold i knew i had a job that yeah that's about it because i mean unless you're going to yale there aren't a whole lot of people who say new haven is <laughs> new haven is where you i want to where in, i want to finish until, until i investigated uh the situation you know where new haven was and everything i didn't even know yale was there i said <laughs> oh wow yale's there oh hell yale's right in the middle of the damn thing <laughs> so how long did it take you to start you know you know, finding musicians, you know, like-minded musicians to play with, because it didn't, I mean, within the year, you're already playing with another band. The first year, uh, I moved out there with my uh, then-girlfriend, um, soon-to-be first wife, uh, Renee Dewar. And uh, for about the first year, we were just getting settled in, got the lay of the land, found where we wanted to live, because we just took an apartment for the first year and then realized like we were out in, a, out in West Haven, we figured we'd be better off in in town. Right. We found a nice apartment there. And then I started looking around, looking in the ads and things like that, trying to find what was going on. And uh, I hooked up with these guys out in Bridgeport. They were looking for a bass player. They wanted to do a recording. So I went out and played with these guys and I had answered a couple other ads with people, but things just you know weren't clicking. So I'm playing with these guys and they've got this crazy song called, um, well, well, it was called big tits. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, was, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't you need to ask you what it was about. <laughs> oh, you don't have to. And, and, and you would, you would hit it right on the head. So we practiced this song and you know, I mean, it's good. It's a, it's a nice rocking song. It's funny, you know? And, uh, so we're clicking, we're hitting it, hitting it off good. And they go, yeah, yeah, we'll record this. Now we just need another song. And I'm like, I've got a song. So I, t- <laughs> I taught him Muckraker. So we recorded Muckraker and Big Tits. 
And I went off my merry way, although uh, through the guitarist, uh, he told me about this band he had called Raw Power. And through them going to see them, I sort of met the people in the Bridgeport scene at the time. People like Keith Amo of Epitome. Um, I didn't meet the guys from uh, the Survivors or anything I got right then, but it was a little bit later that I ran uh, met those guys and things like that. But through them, uh, that's how I sort of got into the scene. Then I put my own ad in the paper, in the Advocate, and through that met Mark Mulcahy and uh, Malcolm Marsden, a bunch of other guys too that didn't work out in the band, but later on became members of other bands. But I really got into the the underground music scene there in New Haven, which really hadn't bubbled to the surface quite yet. Yeah, but this is like around 77? 77. Yeah. 77 early 78 so by by mid 78 had brought saucers together malcolm doak malcolm marsden and mark mulcahy and i and uh, we went over to trodnossel in wallingford and and recorded about six songs the um, first six songs on the what we did uh, cd yeah so so the so the uh, the saucers is now you know up and going and all of a sudden you're starting to get some some notice the uh, the guys from from punk magazine you walk by hear you practicing and next thing you know they're writing about you. Well, uh, punk didn't write about us, no. But uh, but legs and Tom Hearn were walking by our rehearsal loft one day, and they weren't the first. Uh, we met some other local bands and things like that just simply by on a Sunday afternoon with the windows open in our loft and these guys had just come up, but Tom Hearn and legs came up. We met them, became friends with those guys. And Tom was managing the survivors at the time, hmm. uh, known later as Stratford survivors, Mike check. who went on to some quite drumming, uh, drumming fame. And, uh, Tom offered us our first show out in, out in, uh, Devon at the Shandy Gaff opening for the survivors who had to stay outside of the bar because they were all underage <laughs> until it was time for them to play, go in and play. And then they had to leave again. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, I mean, that was the start and saucers had their first gig playing, uh, playing a weekend with those guys. And then from there, we just started uh, meeting more people and, and the club scene in, um, New Haven slowly started to book us like on a Monday night, we would play the Oxford Ale House or someplace like that. And it wasn't until uh, we discovered uh, Ron's, what became Ron's place was Devil's Den at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, when Ron uh, came back from his, uh, his little stay courtesy the state uh he uh he started having us in there and pretty soon we were booking shows every night of the week there and it became just a, a hot little spot it was it was a lot of fun you know it, when i talked to when i actually when i read cheetah's book he was talking to me about uh the uh the music scene in cleveland and it, it sounded like it was like a, nothing but like cover bands and that was pretty much it but then you're moving to new haven and then you're starting to become you know, it, there's a, there's a scene developing in, in New Haven. Was there a big difference between the two cities, between going to Cleveland and going to New Haven musically, or was, because it, it always has felt like New Haven may have been just a little bit more fertile and creative than what was going on in Cleveland, or, or is that not really an accurate look at it? I, you know, because it, because of my trajectory of going through it, it seemed like when I got to New Haven and got myself settled, 
it did seem like there was a greater pool of musicians, like-minded musicians to work with. Uh, that may be because it was a smaller town than Cleveland. Mm -hmm. It may be because Yale was there because there were a lot of uh, Yale students and students from Wesleyan and, uh, and Southern Connecticut state who were in and Quinnipiac who were involved in the music scene, even in the earliest stages, you didn't get that much in Cleveland. Um, it was mostly like the east side was sort of like an arts community. The west side was like a bunch of noisy rock and rollers. And we sort of met downtown and off the sh and, and things were starting to happen. I know that that the, the uh, music scene in Cleveland became much more above ground right after I left. And from like 76, 77 for the next 10 years, Cleveland had a great music scene. The flats area and everything bars popped up a lot of great bands came out of there but when we were there mirrors and um and rocks for the tombs and what have you it started out with very few places to play occasionally if you knew somebody you might get on a bill at the agora yeah uh, then the viking saloon started and and it was mostly cover bands like he said and it was a lot of and mostly the music scene in new haven when i got there was cover bands also but it's just that all of a sudden this i just must have shown up at the right time because this underground scene in the space of two two years popped up until we had our own club we were getting noticed by the bigger clubs and brought in to be opening acts on on some of the the new wave and punk acts that were coming through town well uh, and i would assume that a lot of what was going on in new york was finding its way up you, you know up, yeah, up, up the highway, yeah. and then you know you're right into into New Haven. That's right, and and New Haven saw a lot of great bands come through there. I mean, you saw the Zantes early on there. Uh, Elvis Costello, I think it was like maybe four days before he did the Saturday Night Live show, he played at the Oxford <laughs> Ale House in New Haven. The B52s on their first trip up north there. Mark Mulcahy brought REM to Ron's place. Mm. And uh, yeah, you got a lot of great bands up there. A lot of the New York bands, not so much like the Ramones or the Dead Wars that on a regular basis, they would come through there, but you'd get like uh, the Fast and you would get, um, of course, I'm, of course, I'm thinking I'm in <laughs> Corpse Grinders and David Johansson and people mm. like that. You would get those people coming up and playing uh especially like the Arthur Kane in the Corpse Grinders and the Fasten people like that, because there was a record label in Bridgeport ran by uh, Andy Doback, uh, Whiplash, yeah. that a lot was, was putting out a lot of those guys' records, so they would come up and play up in the Bridgeport area. I was listening to some, uh, some interviews that you had done, uh, you know, on other, on other you know, podcasts, and, and, you know, obviously, you know, when the Beatles come around, it's pretty impactful for you know, a lot of people. But it also sounds like the Velvet Underground was pretty impactful for you too. Tell me about the uh, about how influential those those two bands in particular were for you. Well, let's the easiest thing is to start with the Beatles, right? And when the Beatles, I uh, to me when the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan Show, it was sort of like taking it was like the wizard of Oz where she lands in Oz and all of a sudden everything's in color after it's been in black and white. That's what the world seemed like to me <laughs> after the Beatle and Beatlemania struck it just from that point on the world was in living color and I was right in the middle of it. 
Um, I was, you know, when they, in 63, I was uh, 11 years old. I was just about to turn, turn 12 when they played the Ed Sullivan show. So I was hooked. Yeah. Within a couple of years, um, one summer I went to the Beach Cliff Theater and I saw this movie starring Jerry and the Pacemakers, who were another band that was managed by Epstein out of Liverpool. And they had a movie called Ferry Cross the Mersey. And I, my, me and my friends sat through that on a Saturday afternoon about three times. And on the walk <laughs> back home, we just both agreed, you know, we have to be in a rock and roll band. You know? I mean, I'm 13 years old now. And I'm thinking, yeah, I got to be in a rock and roll band. I had no idea how to do that at that time. And it took me another six years to figure it out. But in 1971, I joined, I joined Mirrors. Yeah. So it accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> Now, were, you, were your parents real happy about that? My parents uh, did not think that was an appropriate uh, lifestyle for anyone. <laughs> My father was uh, against guitars. He would not let me have a guitar in the house. So I never played a guitar at home. I had to leave home to do that. And right. I graduated high school in 70. I moved out and got my own place with some friends and started looking to join a band and ended up being a bass player in Mirrors. Um, but I did have musical training. My father, my father did say, look, you know, if you, you want to be a musician, you better learn something. So I took, you know, clarinet lessons and oboe lessons or, um, trombone lessons. And I sucked at both of them. Something fierce. <laughs> but I learned a little bit, you know, and I, and I got the basics and stuff like that through, through that. And through, we would have, I know in junior high school, you had, you had music classes. Yeah. I don't even know if they have music classes anymore in schools. I but, don't, not, not very often do you find that. Yeah. So, you know, you had that and I, uh, I was never in the church choir or anything like that, but you know, you pick up a little bit, bits and pieces here and there. So, um, no, they weren't, uh, they weren't encouraging, but you know, once I started doing it, they never discouraged me. And even years later, my, my mother remarked that, uh, that she was she admired the fact that i had stuck with it and at this point it was about 10 years of doing this yeah. she was admiring you know she admired me for sticking with it yeah now what about the velvet underground tell me tell me about your your appreciation velvets i came into the vel i i discovered the velvet underground through andy warhol because i had read in magazines about andy warhol and the art he was doing in in the 60s and in one of the articles, they mentioned this band called the Velvet Underground. And then a friend of mine had the first album. So we listened to it and I'm like, yeah, this is, wow, this is awesome. Andy Warhol did this. Huh? Look, he's got a banana on the cover and all that stuff, you know? So that's how I got into them. And uh, as it went on, uh, you realize that people who like the Velvet Underground were like this certain category of people over here that liked a lot of other stuff that was really cool too. Yeah. So I started delving into that and meeting those kind of people. And there was a lot of them in Cleveland. I know, I think it was Eno that said that uh, the Velvet Underground only sold a thousand records <laughs> of their first album, but everybody who got one started a band. I swear 900 of those were sold in Cleveland. <laughs> could be. It could be. It, yeah, to me, that's like always been one of those bands that, uh, you know, you, you, the simplicity of their music, it makes, it makes it feel like anybody could do this. And I think that was like one of the things that, that uh, you know, kind of influenced punk in a lot of ways. It's, it, it, just, it just took the virtuosity of music out of, out of people's reach and just said, you know, anybody can do this. 
and any, and yeah. anyone can, can do it pretty well if they if they just apply themselves. That that's very true. It it brought it back to the masses. You didn't feel like you had to be a virtuoso. Although when you start playing those simple little rhythms and everybody's playing their interpretation of that simple little, little rhythm over the tops of things, you end up with some pretty intricate things. Yeah. So what so what got you to leave uh, Connecticut? Because at some point you decided to move to Indianapolis. And my understanding is you were kind of at the time done with music or, or you just temporarily. I was pretty burnt out come to the end of the 80s yeah. i had uh, i had been i had been working a job and and working music as a job for a good while and i was i was pretty disheartened and i uh, had a few other problems uh, dogging along with me and uh, it was time to make a change yeah um claudia my wife at that time claudia uh was from northern indiana and her father was uh, in poor health so we thought i was uh, i tried to work out a transfer to chicago on amtrak um that fell through uh, so that didn't work mm. out but i found out that they had a really big repair shop here in indianapolis for all their passenger cars and their locomotives that wasn't my craft. I was a guy that worked out on the line, fixing the signals and the crossings and things like that, mm -hmm. both electrical trades. So I transferred what they call crafts and took a job out here in the shops in Indianapolis. This way we were like within a hundred miles of where her parents were. And unfortunately, a couple of years after that, her father passed away. Mm -hmm that time we had settled in here and Claudia found a job in the publishing business and uh, we bought a house and here we are. Unfortunately, Claudia took sick a couple of years ago and she passed away last August. Oh, very sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, not last August, you know, a month ago. And we, I had been uh, here at home for the last couple of years taking care of her. Mm. You know, she had went through her journey with cancer and, uh, now it's time to sort of get back out into the world and uh, start start working again because I had been sitting on the sidelines for a little while. Yeah, well, it'd be, it'd be great to see what you've uh, what you're coming up with. I mean, it, the last album was what twenty twenty. Uh, twenty twenty. I uh, released uh, I released it on Bandcamp, uh, and I made a few CDs which I have, which I'm going to be selling at shows and things like that. And I have them up on my website also at craigwbell.com. And uh, we have some <laughs> good plug. Have, thank you, by the way. Very good plug. <laughs> yeah. We uh, we're doing a show this Saturday night up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, at the Brass Rail with uh, a local act up there named Namin Namin and a band from Bloomington, starring uh, the uh, rock writer uh, Eddie Flowers called Heavy Mother. That should be a fun show. Very cool. Uh, I've, I've been playing some gigs with Eddie over the past few years. I was in the backing band of the revamped Gizmos, the reunited Gizmos about six years ago and did some touring <laughs> down. And uh, I've played with Eddie in a couple of his solo, solo projects. We've become pretty good friends. And it wasn't until I met him that he told me that he was the guy that did the the artwork for the um, Life Stinks Rocket from the Tombs bootleg that that basically kept Rocket's name out in the public mind all those years. No kidding. Interesting. That he would, 
he as under Eduardo <laughs> Flores, he did the cover art. And uh, that was that was just it's That's one of those very cool things that in the world you go around <laughs> the world and just these things just intersect. We're just one big Venn diagram. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's it's funny you talk about the you know Northern Indiana. You know, for for years and years and years, I used to drive all the way from either Massachusetts up to Milwaukee, where I you know I went to I went to school up in uh, Marquette. Oh, in, okay. In, in Milwaukee, so we would do that drive, you know, a couple times a year. And uh, so I, I know all the rest stops over there. So, <laughs> so I, I, it is a long drive too. It, wow. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a, it was a 17 hour drive. It's been a while since I've, uh, I've made that trip, but uh, I might have to do it. And if you're playing out there, I might have to stop by. You should, or you could take the shot across Ontario and then uh, the Mackinac bridge and come down that way too. That actually might be shorter instead of going down and coming back uh, up. I just, I love the skyway. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I mean, and and along the lakes, any anywhere around the Great Lakes is uh, pretty special. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, special, it's a special part of the country around the lakes, no matter where you are. I spent 11 years out there. Um yeah. and uh, you know and what I'm talking about. I that. enjoyed the hell out of it. I really I yeah. really truly did. People I don't think people really understand how how cool of a section of town uh, of the country that is between, you know, Minneapolis and Milwaukee and Chicago and and you know Indiana and and uh, St. Louis that that whole that whole stretch is a really cool part of the uh, the country. And it's a great and and living here in Indianapolis, one of the great advantages is that there are so many great music towns in a circle around you. Yeah, that you can go out and you can work without really having to go out and be out for like two or three weeks. You can go out for a couple of days, come back, go out for a couple more days, and come back. It's it's really a for that's great place. It's got a fairly good music scene. There's a little bit everything around here, really, and but uh, but just small amounts of it. Yeah. Hey, Craig, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Like I said, uh, you know, I, I've I've loved the music that that has come out of that band for a, a long time. Love Pierre Ubu, love the Dead Boys, and it all germinates from Rocket from the Tombs, and it all germinates with you too. So I, I well, Mike, it's real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate the thanks to Chuck. Uh, Chuck Dubay, thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> very good. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Take Have care. Have a great day. Craig Bell's latest album is called Room in My Head. You can find that on Bandcamp or check out his website, craigwbell.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share it, like it, rate it. Tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think, and thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.